0: That's Acts chapter 27, starting at verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramyttium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And sailed. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbour was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cowder, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, They used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing they would run aground on the surface, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of us being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for such a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God whom I belong and whom I worship, And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. That's Acts chapter 27, continuing at verse 27. When the 14th night had come, As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that they might run aground on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretence of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship. "'throwing out the wheat into the sea. "'Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, "'but they noticed a bay with a beach "'on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. "'So they cast off the anchors and left them in the ship, "'at the, last, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. "'Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, "'they made for the beach, but striking a reef, "'they ran the vessel aground.' The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was, they were all brought safely to land." Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island called Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting hands on him, healed him. And when, he had taken, and when he had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him.
1: Let me lead us in a prayer again. Our Father, thank you for this word to us. Thank you for these chapters. Thank you that your voice is clear. And we pray that you might give us ears to hear and hearts ready to hear. Respond to your will for us. Give us certainty in accordance with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder is your social media experience anything like mine? I don't post a lot on social media. You'll know that if you follow me. But when I post something, I have my sort of finger hovering over the post button. I'm wondering have I made this the best post that I can that will get the most likes that I can? Do you have this? In fact, it's not just when my finger is hovering over the post button. I've pressed post, and now, well, the rest of my afternoon is going to be spent rechecking updates. Has anybody liked that post? How many likes have I got? I've even found it when I'm posting in big WhatsApp groups. What sort of reaction will it get? What sort of emoji will people respond with? I slightly fear that, having said that, now people are going to just, just deliberately put lots of random responses to everything I post. That is not a suggestion, students. Thanks very much. But we're obsessed now, aren't we, with likes and with views. I wonder, have we ever wondered what God would press like to? Imagine that God was one of your followers on Instagram. Ask yourself this question. Which of your posts would make him press the heart? And what would he comment underneath? It's a little bit interesting as a question in its own right. But I ask it because it gets us into that broader question. What is it that gets God's approval? What is he for? And of course that matters because we're not just talking about God's verdicts on our social media posts. We're talking about God's verdicts on far more than that. We're asking what he makes of our broader life decisions. We're asking what is he himself committed to? We're asking what the governor of the universe, the creator of the world, is for. And there are lots of different ways that people answer that question. Plenty of enterprises we could occupy our attention with that we conclude God must be for as well. But wonderfully, we don't just have to guess what he is for. He tells us. And he has given us particular insight in this exciting chapter or chapter and a half of Acts. Acts 27, which comes hot off the heels of trials for the Apostle Paul that we've been exploring over recent weeks. Now, Paul has been paraded in front of a series of different courts, and we've heard a consistent verdict for him from all the human judges. He is innocent. And tonight's passage follows a kind of narrative trial of Paul. God's verdict to follow the human verdicts that have come. And I think it's a thrilling story. That's why we had the whole thing read to us so well by Josh. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I have loved getting into it. But it's more than just a thrilling account of something that happened 2,000 years ago. It is an instructive account. Like the rest of this book, it is written to give us certainty, the sort of certainty that helps us to see what it is that God approves, what he is committed to. And that's not just about our social media posts. It's about the direction that we set our lives. Understand this chapter and a half rightly, and it will help us to direct our course according to the glorious purposes of God. And it, is start, it starts by seeing that the Lord has vindicated his servants, The Lord has vindicated his servants. I say it starts like that. This chapter doesn't really split into little sections that each teach a different point. It seems to be one unfolding story that layers up one peril after another. And doesn't it make for such a great read? Paul, he's coming off the back of these trials over recent weeks, is finally given the opportunity to travel to Rome. But there's no public transport system, and the prison system is criminally underfunded. So they end up having to do the ancient equivalent of going on a carpool journey across the Mediterranean. They scout out someone going in the same direction. There's no one quite going to Rome to begin with. And so they find this ship heading for Adramitium, which is sort of on the Turkish coast opposite Lesbos. Uh, They're not going for a summer holiday, uh, they're going to join for half the way there. And you can picture this ship. There's Paul, uh, with Luke, the author, who you might have noticed is saying we and us in the narrative now. Uh, And another guy called Aristarchus, who's one of Paul's co-workers. Then there's the Roman soldiers, led by the centurion, Julius. And finally, the sailors, those who are driving the whole thing. And they travel up as far as Myra on this first ship. Now, at this point, they need to shift to another boat. Because they, they, I'm sure, Turkey's great. That's not where they want to end up. They actually want to go to Rome. And so Julius pulls a few strings, finds somebody else with another boat heading further west, and on they get. And this is the point where things start to turn. Verse 7 of chapter 27. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. do you you notice the narratives turn slightly now there's something sinister going on and it's it's not just the wind it's not the the smell of this first century prison crew there's a threatening note that's starting to sound if Luke were directing this as a film you could imagine that there'd be an ominous theme coming through in the soundtrack verse 9 much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over That is, they've just celebrated Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which means that we're heading into winter. Travelling conditions are only going to get worse. And you might be thinking, well, maybe you should press pause on this journey. That's what Paul was thinking. Verse 10 says, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Which I don't think is because he's had a special word from the Lord. I think he's just checked the weather forecast. And he's seen what the Met Office are predicting and thinks that's probably not a good idea. Sailing from here is a bad idea. And it's at this point we get this fascinating insight into what everyone else thinks of him. They basically ignore him. Verse 11, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. He might as well have kept his mouth shut because on they go towards Rome. Well, now's where it gets really exciting, isn't it? Verse 14, soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And you know it's a serious wind when it gets its own name, right? It's not just Storm Agnes or Storm Debbie. This is the Northeaster, and it's a big one. Even their little utility boat that they'd have used to get to and from the land is threatened. And so, verse 17, after hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis... They lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. The Sirtis, which was this big area where, uh, off the North African coast where there were some sandbanks that famously at the time used to take out ships that ventured too near. Uh, they were so driven by this storm, they'd completely, uh, ended up completely off course and were worried that they were going to be wrecked. Indeed, the sailors got really panicked. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Now, you imagine this film that Luke's directing if he were recording the sort of account of what had happened in film form. Frantic music playing in the background, and you've got to have some shots of those dark black clouds blocking out the sky. Verse 20: When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. The way that Luke has drawn us into this narrative. We are drawn in, I hope, we're sort of meant to ask, has someone done something to deserve this? More specifically, has Paul, the figure at the centre of this chapter, done something to deserve all of this? In our own lives, the Bible never encourages us to look to our circumstances to establish how God feels about us. That is not a good way to answer that question. But in narratives like this, that is the sort of thing we find ourselves wondering. Like in one of the great Greek epics, is this storm signaling the displeasure of heaven? Indeed, like the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament, is this a sign that in fact in some way Paul is disobeying God? Maybe God doesn't like what Paul is doing after all. But if we are asking that question, we get a clear answer in what follows. Verse 21, since they had been Without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Which, does it not make you want to giggle? I just think this is hilarious. I told you so when they're all convinced they're going to die. I think it's brilliant. You realize something of Paul's confidence, but there's more. Verse 22, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. The storm is not a sign of God's displeasure. On the contrary, God is committed to getting Paul to his destination. You must stand before Caesar, he says. And he's committed to saving those who travel with him. God has granted to you all those who sail with you. I will think more about that verse a bit later. But it is a massive thumbs up from God, isn't it? And in case we don't hear it clearly in that episode, the rest of the unfolding chapter is just a series of additional crisis moments that offer us the same verdict from God. So verse 28, the boat starts to run close to some sort of sandbank or reef, and the sailors, aware of their perils, start to plan a, to jump ship. Verse 30, the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. The sailors leaving the ship is a particular problem. I mean, Imagine you're on a runaway train, and the driver starts to climb out the window. That's what we're talking about here. Of course, if that happens, everyone left on board is doomed, Paul included. But circumstances turn in Paul's favor as this time the centurion does listen to him and they cut away the boat to keep the sailors on the ship. Paul is saved. Another thumbs up from God. Or in verse 41, just when they thought they were about to get to shore, the ship strikes a reef with the front stuck and the back being broken up by the waves. And since they don't have that utility boat anymore because they've just cut it off, there's no way of getting them to land in one group. So the soldiers decide the only option is to kill all the prisoners. Again, looks like terrible news for Paul, doesn't it? Only this time he doesn't even need to plead his cause. At verse 43, the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. Paul is saved. Another thumbs up from God. And just in case we were ready to breathe a sigh of relief, still Paul is faced with this challenge. They arrive on Malta. They gather around a fire only for a viper to come out and bite Paul's hand. And the response from the locals is really interesting. Look at verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Can you see how they're expressing what each of these trials is kind of exploring? That the events of circumstance seem to be a public demonstration of whether Paul is in the right or not. Are they a sign that he's guilty? Well, no, time and time again, he's saved, vindicated. And it happens the same this time. Verse five, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. As with all of the previous episodes, Paul's survival works to vindicate him. Justice casts her verdict, or more to the point, God declares his verdict, innocent vindicated. Just as Julius the centurion seems to have changed his mind about Paul, any lingering doubt that we have as a reader is eliminated by Paul's preservation through these trials. He really is God's man. He really is doing God's work. It's a thrilling chapter. I wish we had longer just to go through all of the different details. Uh, We don't. But at least in what we've seen, can you see that Luke is Well, what Luke is showing us, the Lord vindicating Paul. Paul really is God's servant. And you can imagine how Luke's first readers might have received that. Paul was famous for his suffering. He was on death row at the time that this book was being written. It would be easy to question his validity, to question the validity of his ministry. Does Paul get God's thumbs down? Still today, there's plenty who want to distance themselves from the Apostle Paul and his work to take the parts of this book, which were written by Paul, and rip them out of the Bible. But this episode is designed to show God's verdict on Paul. And perhaps unexpectedly, through all of these storms, it is to show his vindication. Over and above the trials of the last few weeks, the events of this chapter show that Paul gets God's thumbs up. And it's more than just a like, isn't it? It authenticates Paul. It's more like that blue tick that you get on X or Instagram that show this is the real deal guy. Paul really is God's man. He really is doing God's work. And yet if we landed the sermon there, I think we'd be pulling up short. Like the ship striking a reef before it made its way to the beach. We'd be getting close to where we're supposed to be. But I think we wouldn't quite be seeing as much as this passage is designed to show us. It's not just about showing God's thumbs up for Paul. It's showing his commitment to the work that Paul was engaged in. Which takes us to point two on the handouts. The Lord has preserved his witness. When God vindicated Paul, it wasn't, it wasn't just because he's particularly pro-Paul. paul It's because he is committed to the work that he gave Paul to do. Look back at verse 24 of chapter 27 and see again what the angel had said to Paul. Verse 24. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. You must stand. You must stand, he says, before Caesar. It's a reminder of the promise that we've already heard back in chapter 23 where the Lord appeared to Paul and said, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That is, God is committed to the good news of Jesus going out and being declared even in the capital of the Roman Empire. God wasn't just interested in authenticating Paul, giving him a blue tick so that we're all thinking, okay, Paul's a good guy. He was committed to the work he gave Paul to do, to take the gospel all the way to Rome. As we said last week, the gospel had to go to the ends of the earth. It's what God had promised back in Isaiah 49. It's what Jesus had promised at the end of Luke and the beginning of this book of Acts. And through Paul, God had sort of completed that work. The gospel had made it to the ends of the earth. If the Bible's categories are Israel and everywhere else... Uh, or Israel and the nations, or as Jesus puts it at the beginning of this book, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth, if those are the categories we have in the Bible, well, by the end of this account, we're into that final category. The gospel has made it there. But there's plenty more work to be done. There's no new categories to reach, but there's plenty more people within that ends of the earth category. And God is so committed to that work continuing that he's determined to take the good news of Jesus even to the highest stage, to Rome, to Caesar, Emperor Nero no less, the self-styled king of the world, worshipped as a god, the greatest contender to Jesus' global rule in the Roman people's eyes. To declare Jesus' lordship to Nero is to declare Jesus' lordship on the highest stage, as high as it will go. And so when God preserves Paul, it's not just a thumbs up for Paul. It's an expression of commitment to this gospel, making sure that it is aired even on the highest stage. You must stand before Caesar. More than that, God has granted you all those who sail with you. It is a reminder to us that God is utterly committed to saving people. Just as we were reminded in Isaiah 49 a week ago, God wants his salvation to go to the ends of the earth. He didn't send his servant on a random broadcast mission, but on a mission to broadcast news of salvation, that they might be saved. Which is why actually in this passage you might have noticed save language coming up all the way through. Verse 20, for example, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Verse 31, unless these men men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Verse 43, wanting to save Paul. 28 verse 1, after we were brought safely through, or as one translation puts it, having been saved. Luke has sort of crammed this passage full of salvation language and tied it particularly to Paul. And while that's sort of to be expected in a narrative about a shipwreck, salvation language has always been significant when Luke has used it. Of course, Paul is fulfilling God's promise of a salvation proclaiming servant. It should come as no surprise that salvation goes with him wherever he goes. If you've not followed the last two minutes, let me put it like this. God isn't just giving his approval to Paul. He is showing his commitment to Paul's witnessing work. His commitment to the proclamation of the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth in order that people might be saved. So many of the things that I put my mind to are just for a short time. I'm sort of semi-committed to them. I've talked to some of you about deciding to be a jogger. I'm going to go jogging, only for a light mist, basically, to put me off for another six months. Uh, Over lockdown, a few years ago, I decided I'd take up painting, which I did for about a whole painting. And it wasn't that detailed a painting. It didn't take me that long. I've got loads of paint and paintbrushes. I'm not quite sure what to do with. Baking, bread baking. Seemed like a really good idea. Everyone was making sourdough. And so I got hold of a sourdough starter. In fact, unbeknown to my uh, flatmate until now, there is an untouched sourdough starter that has been at the back of our fridge for three years. (laughs) We're often committed to projects for a time, or perhaps less than that. But saving people is not God's sourdough project. It is not a fad. It is the great cause to which he is committed. And it remains the great cause to which he's committed today. He wants people to hear of the Lord Jesus so that they might be saved. I wonder what you think of that. I guess for some of us, that's surprising. Maybe you're here as someone who's not a Christian and your view of God was of someone who's just here to ruin our fun, to make life hard for us rather than do us any favors. Or perhaps that he's a character from fiction like Zeus. We need to see that God is committed to saving people. It is the story of the whole Bible. It is the reason he sent his son, Jesus, into the world to save us. It is a profound statement of his commitment to us and of our salvation. But even, of those who, even those of us who aren't surprised to hear that God is about salvation, we need to hear that lesson again. Much as it might be familiar, I think we can find ourselves wondering how committed he is in the day-to-day, wondering, maybe we wouldn't put it this way, but basically wondering, is God really behind advance of the gospel? Does he really want it to go out? think of a conversation I had with a friend this week who just seems so, so disinterested in Christian things. He's quite interested in chatting to me. When I say disinterested, he's not got any personal interest in it. He's quite weirded out by me and quite interested in that kind of way that you might be interested in monkeys in a zoo. I think that's how he views me. And so he asks lots of questions with great intrigue, but there's no sense that he's about to turn to trust in Jesus. Or you think about the spread of the gospel on the wider scale. Biblical Christianity is hardly the the most popular idea in this country, is it? You only need to see the way that it's portrayed on the public stage to see what people think of Christian belief. And that's before you look overseas. Christians are still the most persecuted religious group in the world. The top spot. It's not quite the top spot you're after, is it? Is God really all that committed to the advance of his gospel? And then you come to this episode. And even the wind and the waves are rallied against Paul. But we see God's decisive verdict. He has vindicated his servant. He's preserved his witness. He's committed to this gospel work. And actually, that is the history of the last 2,000 years, isn't it? As God has continued to preserve his witness. It's the testimony of this room, as so many of us here have heard that good news of Jesus and turned to trust in him. As Jenny was telling us about just a few minutes ago, this gospel is, as the title of this talk puts it, immortal. It cannot die because God is committed to it. In fact, we might go as far as to say that you are immortal until God's work for you is done. Not that you can walk in front of a bus and you'll survive. Please don't go and do anything stupid off the back of this. But if God is this committed to his gospel, then he's not going to let anything get in the way of it advancing. And if he needs you to survive in order to get that gospel to the next person, if he still has work for you to do to advance this message, well, even the wind and the waves can't prevail against you. That was the case for Paul, wasn't it? That was why Paul survived, because he must stand before Caesar. God is so committed to his gospel, to saving people, that he will make sure nothing gets in the way. There is only one unstoppable tide washing over the world, and it is the advance of the good news of Jesus. It's a truth that gives us boldness, isn't it? Boldness. Not just when your finger is hovering over a post for a carol service invite. Though I guess it does tell you God would like that. No, it's the promise that God is committed to this gospel going out. This is what he has thrown himself behind. And isn't that the sort of thing? The sort of thing by which you will direct the course of your life. Isn't that the sort of truth that determines what you want to commit yourself to? So many of our life decisions we make on the basis of basically ignorance. We just don't know what's coming. We're trying to second guess what might be just around the corner. So much uncertainty governs our decisions. And Luke, God wants us to have this certainty. That the creator of the universe, the governor of all things, is committed to this work. Don't you want to shape your decisions around it? There's so much more that we could say about that. I hope you'll stick around and speak with one another at after eights about these things. But we need to draw to a close. We don't have time to look at Luke 21 if you're wondering about that. Instead, let me tell you about my desk at home. It's basically a mess, my desk. It is an absolute tip. There's about 12 books scattered over it. Three of them are open and all very important for me to have open and staying there. Paperwork, stretching back for months, all scattered around. And there used to be a post-it note just to the side of my desk that said, what risks are you not taking? I don't know what's happened to that post-it note. And Maybe it got too challenging and I threw it away. But I'm rather inclined to put up another one. Not just risk-taking for the sake of risk-taking, but confidence in the work that God is committed to. Because there is an unstoppable tide washing over this world, and it is the advance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. For all of the uncertainties that surround us, there is one thing about which we can be certain. Let's pray that we keep remembering that. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us this evening. Thank you for this wonderful chapter and a half of Acts. Thank you for vindicating your servant, Paul. And thank you for showing your commitment to this gospel work. Please, we pray, would we believe that you are behind this, that you are for it, that this is what you are committed to in the world today. And we pray that you would help us to see the extraordinary implications of that for all of our life decisions. Help us now as we go on chatting to consider the confidence, the certainty we can have as we step out into this world with your gospel in our hands. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.